This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I invite you this evening to uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Old Testament to the book of Joshua. We find ourselves in Joshua chapter 4 this evening, and uh, we're going to look at all of these verses and... uh, I confess to you that uh, my first point is going to be rather lengthy, and then they'll get shorter as we go. But let me um, begin reading our passage in verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, And bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. 
as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Thus ends the reading of God's authoritative word. Several years ago, we set up in, in our house here down the road a, a little shelf that has several little nooks in it, and uh, we put different figurines or different treasures inside of that little nook. There's probably 20 or 30 different little pieces of whatever it may be as sort of a, a representation of God's providence in our family. And so it could be anything from a medical bracelet from someone's stay at the hospital to a, a penny that was found somewhere that reminds us of God's good hand of providence. And we enjoy telling people who come to our house the many stories of God's grace and providence in the long memory of our family. In our context here, memorials to God is what is being emphasized, God's providence. Chapter 3 ended with a summary of a miracle of God. I know it's been several weeks, but back in verse 17 of chapter 3, now the priest bearing up the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This was a miracle. To sort of back up, you understand that the book of Joshua is being written to chronicle the death of Moses and really the baton of leadership now being passed to Joshua. We've studied the fact that the spies uh, conducted a reconnaissance mission uh, in Jericho. Rahab and her family were saved, trusting in Israel's God, Yahweh. And the report back was a good report. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 24, they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. That was a confession of faith in the power of God. But now the raging Jordan River stood between Israel and the land that God had promised His people. Back in chapter 3, just go back there with me, uh, beginning in verse 14. Here is a summary. When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all the banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing downward toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. That is a summary of the passing through the Jordan. But as we move into chapter 4, it's not really a, a chronology. Chapter 4 is now giving the details of that summary. What was that crossing like? And what the Bible tells us and what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand is that God did not want Israel to forget what God did. He didn't want them merely passing through the Jordan and taking God's providential intervention for them for granted. In fact, perhaps the greatest enemy of faith is forgetfulness. The greatest enemy of faith might be forgetfulness. That is why throughout the Bible we are reminded to remember. Deuteronomy 8, the whole commandment that I command you today shall 
shall you be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." That, that God is in control of your life. He's in control of your circumstances. He's in control of the next meal that you have. We do not live on bread alone, but by every promised word that comes from the mouth of God. And so chapter 4 now is giving us the details about a stone memorial made in remembrance of Yahweh's providential goodness. The memorial itself, which we don't really know what it looked like, probably a heap of rocks, was a memorial that was like a picture for Israel to look at so they wouldn't soon forget the mighty hand of God working on their behalf. And to apply this today, the church, God's people today, need memories to ensure they don't forget God's sovereignty. This is Romans 8.28. We know that God works all things out for those who love God, for those called according to His purpose. You and I have a responsibility to identify personal memories of God's saving intervention. The times in our lives in which God has intervened. I've told many of you the story when I was a teenager and I was the youth pastor of a youth group. And it was about midnight. We decided to go down across the railroad tracks to play basketball. And we're heading down the hill and we hear a train coming. And so I had the stupid idea of saying, let's race The problem is you had to cross the tracks to get to the basketball court, and um, I was the first one that got to the tracks, and I heard the train whistle and happened to turn to my left, and the train was right there just as I was getting ready to cross. And in God's providence, I was saved. And all the, the kids that were with me thought for sure that I had been hit by the train, but God had intervened. Those are amazing times of of humbling. For God to teach us that we are weak vessels. He is in control of every breath that we take. Many of you know that my grandfather was a ball turret gunner on a B-17. He flew over 25 missions in Germany. And one time he was prepared to go on a mission, him and his crew. And uh, he came down with a sickness and was in the hospital for that particular day that they were to go on a mission. So a guy came to replace him on his crew of the B-17, and during that mission, they made it all the way there. They made their bombing run. It was successful, but on their way back, they lost an engine or two engines, and so the pilot, they started throwing the the guns out, all the weight out of the plane, and every crew member jumped into the North Sea except for the pilot and co-pilot who safely crash-landed in England where my grandfather was based, and because of the cold of the North Sea, there was one man in that crew who died of hypothermia And it was the man who replaced my grandfather. And I look back on that and I think, wow, what providence of God. You and I need to identify memorials of times God saved us, saved us from temptation to sin. Memorials reminding us of God's goodness to preserve and to protect us. Well, Israel's Memorial Day, the parting of the Jordan, actually resembles a close parallel to God's parting of the Red Sea. And we even see this, uh, for example, in verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel as they stood in all of him, just as they had stood in all of Moses all the days of his life. There's a parallel being made here. Joshua, because he was obedient to God, led them and delivered them through water like Moses did. 
And what is that being compared to? Verse 23, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you to pass over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed. Indeed, just as one event in Israel's history, the parting of the Jordan, ran parallel to another event, the parting of the Red Sea, so too does Israel's history as a whole run parallel to God's people today. It's the same God. He hasn't changed. He's made promises to his people to preserve us, to save us, to deliver us, and to bless us. And Joshua 4 teaches us that we, like Israel, should identify memorial markers of God's providential faithfulness to his people. And you might ask the question, why? What benefit is it to me to remember these providential works of intervention and faithfulness? Well, there are really three results that flow from the continual habit of identifying God's sovereignty in your life, meditating upon it and thanking God for it. Let me list them to you. First of all, doing such will personally strengthen your perseverance. It will personally help you persevere through life because you have a body of work to operate on where you've seen God intervene over and over and over again, and it will cause you to trust Him more and persevere more. Secondly, Doing so will covenantally affirm God's promises. And that is important not just for you, but for the next generation and the generations to follow. And third, when you do this, it universally testifies to God's power. Your faith in God, your trust in God, your recounting of what He has done in your life, your testimony to that, testifies to the power of God, the reality that there is a God who is in control of all things. So let's look at these three results of identifying memorial markers of God's providential faithfulness to his people. Why should we do that? Why should we identify these memorial markers? Well, number one, because it personally strengthens your perseverance. This is a matter of your walk with the Lord being strengthened. We see this in verses 1 through 6a to begin with. Earlier, Joshua had appointed these men. But he hadn't really revealed the import of their commission back in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. But here in verses 1 through 6, 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, were to be taken from the middle of the riverbed, having previously been covered by water, and transferred to the riverbank on the other side where they crossed as a memorial. Just for example, the end of verse 3 tells us that Joshua told them, bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. That would have been, we know from later in this passage, the place is called Gilgal. That was their base of military operations. And it says that they each took up, according to Joshua's command, verse 5, each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. So they're representing all of Israel, these 12 men, one man from each tribe. But what I want you to see is verse 6. Why did they do this? That this may be a sign among you. That this may be a sign among you. In other words, the first reason that these stones served as a vital memorial marker of God's providential faithfulness related to that very generation who participated in that deliverance and experienced the miraculous crossing. They would need this memorial, this sign, Because the road ahead would be difficult and hard and discouraging. And so each of these 12 men representing the nation as a whole in this present day created a memorial to be a sign among 
them, verse 6, among you. This is how the memorial worked. Every time they went out of Gilgal to obey the instructions of the Lord to conquer the promised land, they would return to Gilgal. They would return to their camp. And no matter how bad the fighting was, no matter how great the sin might be, how unfaithful they had been, how incompetent they had been, they would be reminded of God's goodness, that he had performed a miracle yesterday in the parting of the Jordan. He had performed a miracle in the parting of the Red Sea. He could do it again tomorrow if he chose. And so God's tasking of them to conquer the land was bigger than any one individual, including Joshua, and they all needed their faith strengthened by this sign. We learn from this that when God's people are confident that God is behind them, the result is that each individual is strengthened to persevere collectively as a unit. And this sort of collective resolve, motivated by the memory of God's faithfulness to his people in the present hour, will bring about several important and positive features. First of all, we will have a collective identity. The raising of these stones as a memorial was not something that just happened occasionally. This is something that God's people often did. In fact, in the book of Joshua itself, if you go with me to chapter 7 and verse 26, they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. This is the incident of the sin of Achan. There is a memorial with a heap of stones to remind them of that incident. Or go with me to chapter 24. And notice with me, verse 26, Joshua renews the covenant with Israel, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Again, a memorial Or in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob has a dream and God makes some promises to him that um, followed along the, the heritage of great promises that God had made. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head. He set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. He made a vow to God, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, I will and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What was the promise that God made? Well, behold, the Lord stood above it. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was God's promise to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, that his descendants would be as the dust of the earth. So Israel's Memorial at Gilgal in their present hour connected them with God's people in the past, reminding them that God's character never changes. He can be trusted in the past, in the present, and in the future. So there is a collective identity when God's people have signs reminding them of his work throughout history. There's also a collective duty involved. The theme of obedience is emphasized throughout this narrative. For instance, verse 1 When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men, 
There's a command to Joshua. Verse 4, then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, and he said to them, and he gave the instructions. Verse 5, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up these stones. Verse 8, and the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. There's obedience here. Verse 10, for the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste and when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. A collective duty. Verse 15, the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest to come up out of the Jordan and the priest bearing the ark of the covenant came up from the midst of the Jordan. The soles of the priest's feet were lifted on dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. There was this collective identity and a collective duty to persevere also a collective industry. Everyone embraced their God-assigned, leader-instructed jobs. The priests had their jobs, they performed them. The people had their job to trust in the fall of the ark, they did that. Joshua followed his orders from God and apparently from Moses as well. Moses had previously spoken to him. You even have a reference here, tucked away in verse 12, look at it. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. This was that agreement, if you remember earlier in the book of Joshua, when these tribes wanted to receive their inheritance on the other side. And Moses said, fine, I don't really understand why you want to do that, but if that's what you want, you can have your inheritance on the other side, but you've got to come over and fight on the other side with your people. And in fact, 40,000 of them did that very thing. We even see Joshua being obedient. Everyone is doing their job. 40,000 from these tribes armed for war. And even Joshua goes above and beyond. Notice verse 9. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, we don't have any record of God commanding Joshua to do this. This is a different memorial. The memorial that Joshua commanded the priests to do with the stones was not in the river bed, it was on the river bank. But here in verse 9 indicates the fact that after the, the stone memorial was set up on the river bank, Joshua went, went back and took other rocks and put it in the middle of the river bed. Some commentators um, translate verse 9 differently because they can't make sense of another memorial in the midst of the Jordan. But I think there's good reason to believe Joshua set up another memorial. You say, well, why? Why would he do that? Well, perhaps as a display for the people of God to see what he's doing and maybe question it and for conversation to, to arise, to reinforce the importance of honoring God. In fact, this is Calvin's view. Calvin says, he, Joshua, did a useful act by establishing a testimony in the presence of the people in the second memorial, which would afterwards become the subject of general conversation. In fact, Some commentators argue, what's the point of a hidden monument? Because the water's returned, and those stones will be covered up. Well, number one, when the the water was low, you could probably see the tops of those stones, and it would serve as a reminder. But number two, God is always about the business of hidden reminders, just like the Ark of the Covenant, behind the veil in the temple that no one ever saw except the high priest once a year. 
And yet that was still a memorial. God's people knew it was in there and it reminded them of God's covenantal faithfulness. And so there's actually two memorials set up. Joshua sets the second one up himself to reinforce the significance of memorial markers. Both memorials, the one private, the one public, the one seen, the one hidden, would trigger conversations of God's faithfulness and strengthen the faith of the people to persevere and to continue with the conquest. It would be impossible for them to forget what they had witnessed. Now, I need to say something about the miracle itself. Studying the history of all of this, we learn that soft clay banks along the Jordan River made a a landslide very easy. In fact, especially when accompanied by an earthquake. Such actually happened in 1267. It happened again in 1927, and I think it happened a third time in another year. I can't remember. But in 1927, it was reported that the flow of the river was dammed up from the landslide for 21 hours. In fact, evidence of earthquakes in the excavation of Jericho, the city close by, have even been discovered. If you turn with me to the book of Judges just for a moment, Judges chapter 5, I want you to notice with me the language that is used to describe the event of the parting of the waters. God's act, verse 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Scripture is replete with language that speaks about the earth quaking and mountains shaking when God performs a miraculous act. That is language of earthquake sort of phenomenon. There's another place that's even more pronounced in Psalm 114, which was the hymn book of Israel, and they would sing about God's providential deliverance of his people often. And in Psalm 114, Verse 1, when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became a sanctuary, Israel is dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. But even if earthquakes caused a landslide, which caused the damming up of the Jordan waters, which allowed for Israel to cross safely, God still did it, and that's the point. You couldn't convince any Israelite that day that God wasn't behind it. The summary in chapter 3 at the end of it is clear that God was behind it. The summary and explanation in chapter 4, the difference between the waters being cut off and returning and the mentioning of dry ground, the waters returning back to their place where they were cut off by God. One commentator says the discovery of secondary causes only serves to explain how God did what he did. And only God's intervention can account for the miraculous timing of the water receding and then going back. Another commentator calls this, and I like this, the supernatural use of the natural. The supernatural use of the natural. So this is a miracle. Any way you slice it, whether there was a hurricane involved, or not a hurricane, an earthquake involved in a, in a landslide that dammed up the river like in 1927 and 1267, 
or God just somehow mysteriously made the waters recede. It was God who did this, and that, that is exactly the testimony of Scripture itself, that God was in control of this. And let me just say, we need to remind ourselves, and we need to meditate upon God's providence in our lives, identifying memories where God has intervened because it personally strengthens our faith. We easily forget. And when we forget, we lack faith. Perseverance in the Christian life is based upon a trust and a knowledge of what God has done in our lives to save us, to deliver us, to preserve us, to protect us. By the way, that's what worship is all about. The Bible commands us on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord, the first day of the week. You say, what is worship? I'll give you the definition John MacArthur has given to it. Where he recently said that worship is really nothing more than a rehearsal of divine providence. It is a rehearsal of divine providence. As we worship the Lord, we are reminded as we sing, as we pray, as we sit under the instruction of His Word, we are reminded of all the things God has done in our lives. And it strengthens our faith. That's why we need the church. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to be under the Word. That's why we need worship as a premium in our lives. So that's the first result of identifying memorial markers of God's providential faithfulness. It personally strengthens your faith. But understand this, there's a second result, and that is that it covenantally affirms God's promises. It not only personally strengthens your faith, but secondly, it covenantally affirms God's promises. We aren't to selfishly keep God's faithfulness, seen in as many providences to ourselves. No, we have a responsibility. Notice the rest of verse 6. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Verse 7, then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial, and underline that word, forever. Forever. The ark of the covenant was the central piece of the crossing, the following of that ark, and in that ark was a reminder of God's promises to be faithful to his people. And this is reiterated again. Skip ahead to verse 21. He said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. This is covenantally affirming God's good promises. And the instructions are given twice, verses 6 and 7, and then verses 21 through 23 to reinforce that we are responsible to teach our children to remind future generations of God's covenantal faithfulness. These memorial stones were markers of God's covenantal faithfulness to affirm His promises. And how can we expect to do this today? In other words, how does our faith become that of our children? Well, it involves three very practical things. First of all, you need to have credibility. As parents, you need to have street cred with your children. Let me give you an example. It's natural for a son to want to be like his father, to enjoy his interests and his hobbies. This is natural if you include him in what you do. The other day I was running through a neighborhood and there was this little boy, probably three or four years old, with an adult. And uh, I ran by and, and he said to this adult, what, my, what is that man doing? 
And she said, well, he's exercising. He said, and the little boy said, well, is that daddy? And she said, no, it's not daddy. It's just a man exercising. And he said, well, I want to be like daddy. Let's run. And he started running, and the adult started running with him. And I have no clue who this is, but I guarantee whoever his dad is is doing a good job. Because as a three- or four-year-old little boy, he associates his father with things he wants to do. He wants to be like his dad. Several years ago, I had a gentleman that I was ministering to, and he was explaining to me that he had a very bad relationship with his father. And I said, well, what were the interests of your father growing up? And he said, well, he had all these muscle cars, two or three or four muscle cars at a time. And I said, well, you must really be into that. He said, no, I was never into it because he threatened me with my life if I ever touched his cars. As a result, he has no relationship with his dad. You need to have credibility, parental credibility. They would actually cause a child to ask, notice verse 6 again, when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Notice scripture sees this as a natural question. When your children ask in time to come. You shouldn't be surprised when your children are interested in spiritual things. If you've been faithful to tell them that they're part of the covenant. If, if you've been faithful to tell them that they are part of the rich heritage of promises. That's only natural. And scripture not only sees it as natural but also personal. Notice the question what do these stones mean to you? That speaks of credibility, doesn't it? If spiritual things are not important to you, they're not going to be important to your children. And if you don't convey to your children that spiritual things should be important to them, or that uh, maybe you say to them they can't be important to you yet because you're not old enough, you push your children away. This is street credibility with your children. It's a natural thing for them to ask these questions, to pursue spiritual things. This should not be a surprise. What do these stones mean to you? It's personal because they see your life matches up with what you say. That is critically important. The uh, third church that I pastored was on the state line of West Virginia. It was actually in Kentucky, but it was on the state line. And I interviewed for the job in West Virginia, actually in my hometown, in a downtown hotel. And uh, Corey and I, they wanted her to come in for the interview as well, so... um, Gracie was our only child. No, we had Jackson as well. Gracie and Jackson at the time. And so um, some ladies of the church watched Gracie and Jackson. And I guess, you know, one way to understand, you know, whether the guy you're getting ready to hire is good enough or not is to ask the children a lot of penetrating questions. And I don't know what they, they asked Gracie, but she told them the story of um, just two weeks ago before we had gone to the interview that we had had a funeral at the church and... and um, I guess Gracie indicated the fact that the husband of this dear saint who had passed away wasn't a Christian, and then proceeded to tell these ladies something to the effect of, I guess he's in hell now. She was only, what, three or four years old? And uh, when Corey told me that's what had transpired, because the ladies came and told us this, I thought, well, there goes that job. I'll never get that church. But actually, it, it really persuaded them to hire me, because she had the categories of heaven and hell and understood the importance of the gospel at three or four years old. There is a credibility that is critical. It is natural for children to ask, what is God doing in your life? What is the meaning of God's providence? And therefore, we have a duty. Scripture commands Christian parents to involve their children in their spiritual journey. Notice verse 7. Then you shall tell them, when they ask, you shall tell them, well, the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial 
forever. Notice that language, verse 7, then you shall tell them. Verse 8, these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial. Verse 22, then you shall let your children know. There's an inevitability to this when you have credibility. Verse 21, when your children ask their fathers in times to come. This is natural. There's credibility, which produces the natural question. There's duty when they ask, you shall tell them. Children of Christian parents are to be told from the earliest possible age of the mighty acts of God throughout history so they can learn the expectation of faithfulness to have the faith of their parents. Here's the reality. The stones didn't have mouths. The memorial didn't have a mouth, but the parents had a mouth and God expected them to use it. In fact, Calvin says this, although the stones themselves cannot speak, yet the the monument furnished the parents with materials for making the kindness of God known to their children. And here, zealous endeavors to propagate piety are required of the parents. Zealous endeavors. They are called upon to exert themselves. Think about that language. Zealous endeavors exert themselves. In what? Calvin says, instructing their children. For it was the will of God that this doctrine should be handed down through every age, that those who were not yet born, being afterwards instructed by their parents, might become witnesses to it from hearing, though they had not seen it with their own eyes. Yet they felt as if they were there. They were part of the people of God. And as the following generations heard this miracle, they were able to participate, as it were, from a distance. You know, one of the issues in the church today is that children don't feel a part of their parents' faith. Because all children ever hear, and teenagers included, are the words and wisdom of their peers. Children need the words and wisdom of truth from their parents, from other older saints in the church. This is our duty to teach the next generation in fact, uh, one of the most famous verses in this entire book, Joshua twenty four fifteen. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Joshua says, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or what about Deuteronomy chapter 6? I know you are very familiar with it. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I mean, to be a parent is another full-time job. It's not a hobby. It's not something to be taken lightly. The promise of Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. That can go both ways, right? You train him up rightly, he won't depart from that. You train him up wrongly, he won't depart from that either. There's credibility, there's duty, and there's also theology. Um, Back in Joshua chapter 4, notice again verse 22. The children asked, what do these stones mean? Verse 21, verse 22, then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. That was the present event. But notice verse 23, for... The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. This is not just a regurgitation of children's Bible stories. That's not what this is. This is not a simple flannel graph in Sunday school. 
And growing up, I'm so grateful for my Sunday school teachers, and I'm still in touch with my Sunday school teacher when I was two and three and four years old. She was so faithful to teach the Word of God. The problem is not Sunday school teachers. The problem is pastors who do not equip Sunday school teachers to teach the rich theology of God's Word. The theology is the connection between what happened at the Jordan and what happened at the Red Sea and how all of that is connected with the covenantal promises of God. This is the same God. He parted the Red Sea. He parted the Jordan. He is faithful. The Red Sea theology was deliverance from bondage of Egypt. The Jordan deliverance was freedom in the promised land, the freedom to conquer the land God had given. And by the way, the Red Sea recalled in the New Testament It's recalled in the New Testament where Christ is seen as accomplishing a new exodus, a deliverance of his people. Jesus spoke about this on a number of different occasions. He spoke about his departure, his exodus, to deliver his people from sin. Galatians 3 speaks about the fact that we are sons of Abraham through faith. So this memorial explained in terms of theology says you're part of God's people, you're intended to receive God's promises as far as the eye can see generationally. And this is even repeated in the New Testament, for this promise is for you and your children, Acts 2.39. This is not restricted to the Old Testament. These are promises to a thousand generations. The covenant promises are meant to be passed down successively to each generation. That children are to be part of our faith, part of our spiritual journey, it is to be expected. And just as God performed the Red Sea and the Jordan events, so too has He performed the incarnation of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And that's Paul's point in Romans 6, right? We looked at it this morning. You participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus, even though you weren't there physically. And notice the language again of verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you. Now, wait a second. If this is spoken to future generations, they weren't there. That's the point. It was still for them. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us. This is the people of God collectively incorporated into one under the promises of this God. No matter what generation it is, they have all been a witness to this and a participant in these miracles. This is the corporate language. It's as if these future generations passed with their parents through the waters because the faith of their parents, God promised, would become their own faith. And of course, the signs of the new covenant, baptism, which is initiation into God's covenant people, and the Lord's Supper, which is continuation of fellowship into the one body of Christ, are signs for us today. Here is what um, Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary. I like this. He says, and I quote, Israel must not only remember for themselves, but teach their children to remember as well. The 12 stones were meant to provide occasions for teaching, for impressing upon the next generation Yahweh's mighty act at the Jordan. We can almost see it now. 15 years post-Jordan time, an Israelite father and a six-year-old son are strolling through Gilgal National Park. The lad spots an imposing pile of stones. He counts 12 and exclaims, hey, daddy, what are those stones for? The son's curiosity now becomes the occasion for communicating to him the news of Israel's astounding God and how he unleashed his power for his people. This is what we do when we explain the sacraments to our children. We want them to be part of the sacraments and understand what they represent because they represent the gospel. And oh, by the way, 
If you go back and read Exodus chapter 12, you will find that as verse 19 says in our text, the 10th day of the first month, that would be in the month of Nisan, that was the day that the Passover occurred. So that Israel's deliverance from Egypt occurred on the same day that they were delivered through the Jordan. You think God is sovereign? He's sovereign over every date of your life. He is sovereign over the details of the history of his redemption to make parallels, to press home points, to reinforce truths that he is in control of all things. Most of all, he is faithful to his covenantal promises. So again, I can't stress enough, these memorial markers of God's providence in our lives is not just for us. This is not just to personally strengthen our own perseverance. It is to covenantally affirm God's promises to the next generation. And it's not just to be kept to ourselves and it's not just to be kept in our families because there's a third result of identifying these memorial markers. Not only does it personally strengthen our perseverance and covenantally affirm God's promises, but number three, it universally testifies to God's power. Notice, if you will, verse 24. Why do we tell this to the next generation regarding our children and grandchildren? Verse 24, so that eventually all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Calvin says, he states that God had put forth that manifestation of his power that it might not only be proclaimed among his own people, but that the form of it might spread far and wide among the nations. For although it pleased him that his praise should dwell in Zion, it pleased him also that his works should so far be made known to the strangers that they might be forced to confess that he is the true God and be compelled unwillingly and willingly to fear him. This is not something that is just personal. This is not something that is just covenantal. This is something that is universal. It is universal. God's sovereignty is like a road map of stops along the way, leading to his glorious purpose and destination for the world he created and is renewing. God's sovereignty is a road map, and he will conquer not just a strip of land in Palestine. Please understand that. He has a bigger vision to conquer the world. Read Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So these stones, verse 7, would, were to be a memorial forever. Verse 24, that all the nations might fear the Lord God forever. I spoke several weeks ago about the cultural or the creation mandate found in Genesis chapter 1. It's really the, the blueprint for humanity. You don't have to turn back there. I'll just remind you of it. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. We've learned from Romans 5 that the first Adam failed in that, right? That was the blueprint. The second Adam now takes on this project on behalf of his people. That cultural mandate in Genesis 1 to have dominion is then reworded in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel that the nations might believe. Habakkuk 2.14, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 86.9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. What about Psalm chapter 8 and verse 6? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. 
all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who went through his own suffering and temptation, the fulfillment of Israel, and he passed the test for our sakes. He is the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything is in subjection to him, the author of Hebrews said. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so, verse 24 of chapter 4, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is an issue that has universal implications. We um, identify the providence of God in our lives not only for our own souls. It strengthens our faith. We do it for our kids. We do it for our grandchildren. We do it for the next generation. And we do it for the world. It's not just personal. It's not just covenantal. It is universal. Because we believe that the second Adam will fulfill the cultural mandate, the creation mandate through the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of the nation. Now that is an intimidating task. God's people are privileged to see the intervention of God's providence, but there are strings attached, and the strings attached are you have a responsibility to tell others, to impact the world with the knowledge of King Jesus and His rule. How do you do that? Well, let me close by giving you three simple points. First of all, you need to be prayerful. Jesus And what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is actually our prayer, that he asks us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You don't believe the gospel can change the world. You don't believe that because you don't pray that. Jesus said, pray that. The first and chief responsibility of God's people are to be people of prayer. Your children are struggling. Your grandchildren are struggling. Be in prayer. Be faithful to tell them the truths of the gospel and trust in God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You don't believe that that neighbor that you've known for 30 years will ever come to know the Lord or that relative? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be prayerful. Secondly, you need to be patient. The kingdom of God has a a secret sort of growth to it. And um, Jesus spoke about this on a number of different occasions in a number of different ways. He said this, for example, The kingdom of God is not coming on ways, in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. We need to be patient. The kingdom of God will come, but it doesn't come by coercion. It comes by conversion to the gospel, and we don't know when the Spirit of God is moving and working in someone's heart. So we are faithful to proclaim the gospel. We are faithful to live the gospel before the world. We aren't to kill our enemies. We're to follow the example of Christ and love them. Jesus was killed by his enemies, wearing a crown of thorns, not jewels. And so there was no one saying the kingdom of God is here. They were saying the kingdom of God has been defeated. The disciples thought that. This is the end. Our king is gone. The kingdom grows subtly, right? Like leaven, Jesus said that. He gave the parable of leaven. He said, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The kingdom of God increases and spreads until it permeates the world. It's like leaven. Have you considered the fact that perhaps we're still in the infancy of the church. And if that's true, and the Lord's not going to return for another thousand years, there's a hefty responsibility for you as Christian parents. There's a hefty responsibility for us to be faithful to pass the legacy of the gospel down, to build a legacy for future generations, not self-serving purposes, not to be a flash in the pan, but to build that which lasts, that requires patience that requires faithfulness that requires trust in the way God tells us to do things know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations to a thousand generations we are to be prayerful we are to be patient and third we are to be practical We're to use our sphere of influence to the max without worrying about recognition we may receive, without feeling inferior because of our spiritual gifts. It is our duty to promote the crown rights of King Jesus in every sphere of our lives, every relationship, every business interaction in the community, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are to be practical. I was at a a graduation several years ago for um, several of the seniors that were part of the, the youth group of the church that I pastored. And the whole theme of it was the idea of being a world changer. And um, it was really sad because the, the message they were selling these kids is false. Not everyone can be a world changer because that idea is just filled with ambition and selfishness and rivalry and it's a self-focusedness, self-centeredness. No, the message that young people need to hear is the message of be faithful with who you are, where God has put you in your station in life. Regardless of who sees, you play before an audience of God. Be practical in your influence for the kingdom of God. That might mean that, might mean that uh, you're only influencing two or three people at a time, but do your best influencing them with the gospel, discipling them, whatever the case may be. We need to take a play out of the atheistic playbook. We really do. You've heard of uh, Gramsci's long march through the institutions, intellectual takeover of the universities, a very methodical, planned effort to brainwash the children, and it worked. And now every secular university essentially is is a house of demons with demonic teaching that brainwashes our youth. Why aren't Christians forward thinking why aren't christians generationally thinking forwardly don't let the world win first of all they can't we need to win the world for god remember memorialize god's great acts in history reclaim the world map for him because it all belongs to him anyway but what do you see in the church today you see superficial methods that are carnal to try to grow the church Try to meet people's felt needs instead of telling them the truth. And that's why the church is impotent. That's why the church is so weak. And atheists have this 
methodical vision that is generational to destroy our country for secularism and for all that opposes God. So we have our work cut out for us, but we got to be prayerful, we got to be patient, we got to be practical. This doesn't happen overnight. Not every church can be a mega church. Not every Christian can be a mega Christian. God just asks us to be faithful where he's placed us. And that begins with the simple, right? Washing your wife with the water of the word, Ephesians 5. Raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Teaching them the gospel. Teaching them the word of God. Teaching them the law of God. Worshiping the Lord each Lord's day. I mean, those are fairly regular, simple things. There could be hard things about them, but it's a simple method that can be easily despised and people despise it all the time. But when we identify memorial markers, we're doing what God's people did in Joshua 4. We're reminding ourselves of God's faithfulness so that we persevere personally, so that we covenantally affirm his promises to the next generation, so we universally testify about God's power to everyone that we know. Because we have a voice, because we have mouths, we need to use it for his honor and his glory. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.